Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Turkish Heritage Organization podcast episode. This week, we are really excited to host a new guest with us, Temuz Bezmez, who is with our THO Contributor Program, and we're just thrilled to be able to hear from you, Temuz. So if you wouldn't mind, please just share a little bit about your background and why you are interested in U.S.-Turkey relations to begin with. Yeah, of course. Actually, for, uh, well, first of all, thank you very much uh, for having me. It's a pleasure to being being in this uh, podcast. Uh, well, uh, as you said, I, I graduated from political science, actually, from Galatasaray University, uh, which is a francophone uh, university in Istanbul. And then I got my master's degree in international trade from uh, Paris 1, the Sorbonne University. Uh, actually, before beginning to my current position at, at DEIC, uh, you know, the Foreign Economic Relations Board of Turkey, I was working as an intern at the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe, Geneva, and in which I, in, in where I, I've been taking part in, you know, developing policy guidelines, uh, you know, to achieve mostly uh, SDGs, uh, especially number 10 and 11, uh, which are, you know, reducing inequalities and, and building sustainable cities in the framework of uh, UN global agenda. And now, uh, currently, I'm, I'm working at, uh, at the DEIC, uh, which is, you know, Foreign Economic Relations Board of Turkey, in uh, Turkey Asia Pacific Business Councils. Uh, it's an institution uh, mostly responsible for managing um, foreign economic relations of, of Turkish private sector, uh, in particular with respect to, to foreign trade and international uh, investments. And um, and, and also, I have a you know specific uh, interest in, in Turkish-American uh, relations because I I believe that understanding Turkey-U.S. Uh, relations uh, and its its history, its dynamics is is really vital to to analyze Turkish foreign policy uh, and also its foreign economic relations. Uh, actually, as a Turkish Turkish person who has an academic background uh, in France and currently working in Asia-Pacific, uh, I think it's really important to see uh, the, the multi-vectoral approach uh, in, in, in current interconnected uh, world. And from Turkey's perspective, mostly learning about uh, Turkey-U.S. relations is, is vital to, to widen you know, our, our perspectives. And that, that's why, actually, uh, I'm really glad and more than glad to, to be a part of uh, this uh, organization, to THO. Well, we are certainly grateful that you are joining us, and you definitely have uh, such a wonderful global outlook, which is exactly what we're hoping to encourage with our audience and um, gaining new perspectives. Now, as part of a THO contributor program, you recently published an article imagining a post-COVID-19 global economy. And obviously, it's very difficult to predict anything these days. But you suggested um, you know, the question of you know, substitute, substituting globalization for regionalization. Um, you know, what are the ideas of how regional organizations can um, really take prominence as a result of the COVID-19 disruptions? And what are we seeing in terms of just the general future that you discussed in your uh, in your article, uh, well, actually, uh, you know, the, one of the trends uh, that are expected to be accelerated uh, is, is regionalization, uh, and there is strong tendency, uh, especially after uh, the COVID nineteen crisis, because uh, also with with the crisis, actually, we understood the importance of, of diversification uh, and also on, 
we are observing more uh, growing public concern on delocalization of production uh, that was um, like a, a vital point of, of, of globalization uh, and also the complexity of supply uh, chains. Uh, well, firstly, uh, regarding the complexity of, of these global supply chains, a quick example to that can be uh, automotive giant Toyota which has more than 2,000 suppliers uh, around the world. Mm -hmm. And so I think, uh, an therefore, we understand that a, an international company uh, needs to do the mapping of a supplier, of a supplier, and also its supplier. The list goes on. So this reflects the, the, the complexity uh, of these uh, supply chains. And also, this reveals uh, the fragility uh, of, of all trade relations in case of a crisis, uh, or even just uh, in case of a failure uh, of a center of export. And so uh, we have seen that uh, during the crisis, a lot of supply chains are dependent on, on China and Chinese um, manufacturing capabilities. Uh, so a quick example to that is also uh, pharmaceutical products. Um, you know, Chinese, Chinese manufacturers make around 40% uh, of all uh, pharmaceutical products used in worldwide. It's a tremendous, uh, tremendous share, I think. Uh, and so, you know, the global supply chains actually uh, were the engines of, of economic globalization, as I uh, said before. Uh, but on the other hand, diversification is getting more uh, important. Uh, one recent example to that is uh, Japanese uh, Prime Minister uh, Abe just announced a $2.2 billion uh, of stimulus package uh, aiming to relocate uh, Japanese production from China to, to South uh, Asian countries. And also, uh, we have seen that, that companies are very vulnerable to these complex uh, supply chains. I think in a, in a recent article in Harvard Business Review, a, a, qu a perfect question is asked in this matter. Uh, will companies and countries seek greater safety in international diversification or, or uh, will they try fostering domestic uh, self-sufficiency? And I think in this point, uh, we can dive into this question of regionalization uh, because especially recently throughout the last uh, 30, 40 years, uh, developing Interregional uh, trade, interregional uh, relations uh, is very. It was very beneficial uh, for the countries within the region, especially uh, uh, against uh, against uh, against the economic globalization, and and you know the. Uh, it is also, for example, highly important uh, for for European Union or ASEAN countries. Uh, to decrease their dependencies to, uh, but for the EU, we can say to the US, but mostly for ASEAN countries uh, to decrease their dependency on, on China. And uh, I think countries uh, within the region that are more integrated to one another uh, are also gaining a lot of advantages in international uh, relations and they are becoming stronger in economic terms. Um, for example, I would say for the EU, uh, despite a number number of articles who declare uh, the debt of EU, I believe that that the current agenda uh, provides 
uh, a lot of opportunities to the EU within uh, this this concept of acceleration of history and the um, the concept of uh, regionalization. Uh, yeah, I, I think, and also, yeah, there are also a lot of counter arguments to that. Uh, but I, but I think most generally, I can uh, I can resume to that. Yeah. Certainly, and I think that's so important is that we are all constantly, um, you know, watching the developments, of course, as it unfolds with COVID, but in response to that, you know, the geopolitics and the economic uh, relations shift constantly, and so I think it's been great to hear kind of your take on this um, disruption in our world and how we move forward. Now, I know that we had discussed previously, but I would love to hear, um, this is a broad question, but I would love to hear some of your specifics on what could be the political and economic risks and uh, potential forecasts for the near future in a, a hopeful um, and idealized post-pandemic world. Sure, sure. I, I'd love to respond to that. Uh, well, actually, now on, we are going through uh, from a supply, demand, and financial shocks both happening at the same time. So uh, WTO uh, estimated 32% of decrease in global trade. Uh, you know, analysts say uh, we are living the biggest uh, recession since World War One. And actually, I think the recent uh, World Bank analysis showed that uh, this crisis is expected to be twice as bad as the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, and does uh, all industries actually are being affected, but mostly, of course, uh, aviation, uh, tourism, leisure services are are being are being uh, are being hit hard, and 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 also, you know, there are of course a lot of estimations. For example, of Yungtad uh, says the world trade in terms of direct investment from overseas can drop by 40 percent. Uh, and also global employment is expected to rise uh, to its highest level since 1965. And, and also to all to that, I think, uh, you know, last year un uncertainty uh, was a top word in, in all analysis. Uh, okay. Really? So, sorry. So just a moment, please. Oh, that's okay. No, take your time. Yeah. And yes, um, so uncertainty was a top word in in uh, mm -hmm. in 2019 in all analysis, and I think this uncertainty, this word, is getting uh, even more important uh, after this crisis. Uh, and I think, uh, and besides, besides COVID-19 impact, there are other existing risks. Uh, but I think, as, as in the first question I said, COVID-19 crisis can play an accelerated role in these risks to watch in, in near future. Uh, for example, uh, uncertainty about U.S.-China decoupling, mostly in trade and technology, uh, especially you know, with the China's uh, big 5G plans, uh, digital infrastructure investments uh, through BRI in initiative uh, and, and very newly announced the Chinese Standards uh, 2035 plan. And also, uh, I think the political blame game can also intensify, especially uh, before the U.S. elections in November. Uh, and also, I think I would say uh, as a second risk, maybe, 
uh, will we we are we can see more protests uh, in social movements based on inequalities, uh, based on identities, based on environmental issues. Uh, this is also, I think, a very high probability regarding uh, the uh, rising concerns about uh, economic, socio-economic inequalities, and also uh, concerns about uh, climate uh, crisis. And also, uh, for another risk, it can be said that uh, new forms of protectionism, such as export controls, uh, pose a serious risk to to, to international trade. Uh, as also, I think, uh, Meredith Crowley uh, pointed out that more restrictions, uh, especially on food and medical uh, supplies, can can also appear. Um, and I, and I think in this time uh, of a crisis, uh, a lot of a lot of analysis point out that emerging countries seem to be uh, more more vulnerable to these uh, crises with the lo with lower capacity uh, to to respond with, with high stimulus packages. And uh, I think also, to finalize my answer, from the Asia-Pacific standpoint, uh, also I think India-China border dispute is about to deepen in the next months. Uh, falling remittances create a, create a larger impact on, on South Asian economies, such as Bangladesh, for example, such as Nepal. Um, and of course, the major hot zone uh, is, it will be, uh, of course, Hong Kong, uh, with national security law protests return, uh, and I think throughout the year of 2020, we'll be discussing more uh, the outrage uh, in Hong Kong, and and also to finalize my my answer, uh, I also can say that um, the events that will come out uh, in in next months, for example, Germany. Uh, will assume the EU presidency next month. For example, the Brexit transition is about to expire. Uh, we'll see. Will there any? Will there be any reform on WTO with the new Director General, for example? Um, and there are also rising concerns about Belt and Road Initiative, China's ambitious uh, development plan. Uh, more and more countries, especially in Africa and Southeast Asia, are being indebted to. China, um, yeah, and also you know, at some point of post-COVID world, we'll definitely start discussing the word austerity again, uh, with the you know high number of fiscal stimulus packages. Uh, the role of government is getting larger and larger in the economy, uh, and also, also the word of self-sufficiency uh, is getting more uh, important uh, in 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 this uh, near future. Certainly. You know, that was a great overview and something that you discussed that I, I think is important to note is that as the world changes, of course, uh, we are seeing the impacts of social unrest in, in many countries uh, with protests, as yeah. you mentioned, and the impact, of course, of domestic politics. And in the U.S., uh, the domestic, um, you know, presidential election coming up very soon. So that certainly plays a role. I'm curious, though, uh, for one last question, to hear more about uh, what you what you might see as the main challenge for globalization and whether or not COVID-19 will have an impact, a lasting impact on globalization. Mm -hmm. You know, we have heard from experts that 
um, the levels of nationalism that we are seeing right now are as high as um, when we were in World War II. Is that something that we're going to continue to see a trend, or is this something that um, perhaps we will see more increased cooperation in the near future? Uh, yeah, uh, that's a great question, actually. Uh, so I think globalization so uh, has been actually going on for I mean, several thousand years, you know, from trade between China and Roman Empire to, to geographical discoveries, uh, you know, European overseas exploration and the rise and the establishment of colonial trade between the regions uh, gave, a, gave a boost to the rise of global trade. But of course, uh, the globalization we're living today is way more different uh, than just uh, about intensifying global trade. It is more interdependent with it, with hyper-sophisticated network links, uh, net, and not just in trade terms, but also geopolitically, uh, socially, and culturally. It, it exists actually in every aspect uh, of our lives. And, and one reason for that is, of course, uh, the, the rapid digitalization and, and port industrial revolution. And on the other hand, I think this situation of a, of a hyper-globalization that goes along with promoted neoliberal policies uh, since the 80s uh, with actually, I would say, two dangerous uh, types of capitalism, with consumer capitalism and with corporate capitalism. And actually these, are, uh, these two are going side by side with the proliferation of tax havens uh, for large corporations. Uh, in this point, actually, Jeffrey Sachs uh, argues uh, that the globalization of capital markets has made easier uh, for companies to hide their profits in offshore accounts. Uh, also, we can also add the, the proliferation of uh, too big to fail uh, tech technology companies. And uh, that is one of the most dangerous problems in, in hyper-globalized world because it has a huge negative impact on the income uh, distribution uh, in every country. Uh, as you said, actually, in, in the question, social, social unrest is, is becoming... Uh, is spreading all across the world, uh, and one of the reasons for that is is actually this is a negative impact on the income distribution and populist discourses uh, around the world actually using this by strong polarizing arguments and actually basically exploiting uh, this phenomenon uh, within the context of identity politics by blaming migrants, refugees arriving to host countries. A uh, number of arguments around national sovereignty, uh, which is a famous, for example, slogan of uh, take back our country, uh, you know, delocalization of production, rising inequalities, and, and of course, rising unemployment uh, give an open floor to these movements. And, uh, and I think also this crisis has also revealed uh, the vulnerability of this, uh, of the new public management conception, you know, the promoted uh, with the neoliberal turn in globalization since the 80s, uh, which proves that a tremendous insufficiency of public investment uh, in, in highly important sectors such as health, health sector. And, and I think alongside with this, I would say um, there were already question marks around the globalization. Uh, we have been witnessing the danger of a system based on a perpetual growth and maximization of profits, uh, which have you know long-term negative impact on on world ecosystems, uh, mm -hmm. and I think so. You know the old normal uh, 
was, I think, already fragile, uh, already vulnerable. Uh, and, and these are the main reasons why, of course, uh, as you said, 2019 uh, was a year of protests, you know, and mostly protests against growing, growing gap uh, between the real economy uh, and the mm -hmm. finance. Um, and also, from the international relations standpoint, I think also we have also been witnessing uh, that the globalization, as we know today, uh, was not 100% working. Uh, for example, uh, multilateral organizations are being abandoned uh, by the current U.S. government. Uh, for example, uh, UNESCO, WHO, uh, lowering funds mm -hmm. to the UN. Uh, these same organizations actually um, were established in the leadership of the U.S. Um, and the same multilateral organizations uh, goes hand in hand with uh, globalization were also not really uh, functional. Uh, I, I want to actually uh, point out two examples to that, for example. Um, for example, in the UN, which was founded in 1945 with five permanent Security Council members and with 50 nations, it has, in the year of 2020, it has still five permanent uh, Security Council members, while the UN's total member states reached 193. Uh, and World Trade Organization also cannot reform itself, it cannot set the rules because of the proliferation of uh, member states. And adding to that, maybe, this, this is also argued, I think, in a, in a Project uh, Syndicate article, that they are not compatible with the digital uh, revolution. And, and second greatest uh, challenge uh, was, of course, the re-emergence of China as a, as a global power. Uh, so when Xi Jinping uh, announced Belt and Road Initiative in 2013, it, it mm -hmm. uh, posed an alternative model for the international development and also for the globalization. Uh, you know, and China actually was uh, the biggest beneficiary country of the U.S.-led globalization, uh, with also with also other uh, Asian countries over the past uh, 20, 30 years, wants now uh, to lead the change actually in in globalization and lead the digitalization uh, with Made in China 25, 25 plans, uh, with 5G technologies, with Chinese standards 2035. So it's also uh, a greatest one of the greatest risks to. To, to the current globalization. Uh, I mean, China, China does not want to be a norm taker anymore, but also they want to uh, become a norm uh, shaper uh, country. So uh, with the COVID-19 uh, crisis, uh, so as in the first question I mentioned about disrupted global chains, uh, return of a big uh, term of a big government, uh, and also, as you pointed out, uh, potential rise of nationalism in international uh, trade. Uh, but on the other hand, I think this crisis has also reminded us the importance of, of international coordination. Uh, and I think this is the reason why international community uh, will need to aim for a more sustainable way of, of globalization, uh, which has, I think, has, has enormous positive impact for both countries and also for uh, private sector. Uh, so I think uh, to to sum up, to finalize my answer to that, uh, as I think Adam Tooze says, there are good reasons to to welcome the end 
of 1990s style of this hyper uh, globalization. And, and at this point, actually, Daniel Roderick, uh, an economist of, of Harvard University, asserts that it, it is not necessarily bad if we are able to construct a more uh, sensible uh, globalization. And, and, and there are, of course, a lot of many questions to ask in the near future, but I think uh, in this period of uh, transformation of globalization, uh, for, and, and for example, Bertrand Badi, uh, and a French professor, uh, also says a second uh, act of globalization. Uh, in this process, I think countries like Turkey, for example, can play uh, a bigger role uh, than the usual. Uh, of course, uh, if we can, if, if you are able to minimize our fragile uh, spots, and of course achieve necessary uh, reforms. So I think uh, I can finalize my answer with a question. Uh, will well, I also uh, uh, ask this question in, in, in my article that will the upcoming reforms in international organiza organizations uh, meet the expectations? I think that's the, uh, one of the most important questions to ask about, ask about, uh, about the future of globalization. And, and and I I try to uh, explain challenges uh, of globalization uh, in my answer. So yeah, uh, all I can say for this. Yeah. No, that was fantastic, and I think it's critical that no matter where we are, whatever challenges we face in the world, uh, globalization is critical and it is imperative. So hopefully we will continue to see mm -hmm. this cooperation. And I want to remind our audience that they can visit www.turkheritage.org to visit Tammuz's article and all of the other contributors' article, as well as our other podcasts and upcoming webinars and events. So again, that is www.turkheritage.org. Please subscribe to our newsletter, and we'll see you next week on our next podcast. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you very much for having me.